Our most gracious Father, thank you that in your sovereign goodness, you have gathered us together to study your word. And we pray, Lord, that the Holy Spirit would be with us during this time, that he would open the eyes of our hearts to understand and to be convicted by what we read today. We pray that this time would glorify Christ. We pray that this time would be a time of us purging sins, turning from sins in our lives that we've neglected for far too long. We pray that your work in us would be done as we come to your word, all for the glory and the honor of the Lord of the temple, our Savior, Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Well, if you have your Bible with you, go ahead and turn to uh, the chapter, uh, chapter 2 of the Gospel according to John. That passage from Revelation 19, verses 1 to 7. The great multitude in heaven, sounding so powerful that it's a multitude that John really can't describe. All he can do is liken it to this raging river. It's, it's something that I don't think our minds can even begin to truly grasp what it will be like on that day. As creatures who were made in the image of God, every one of us, every person on the earth was originally created to worship our God, our Creator. But this is one of the great purposes of human existence that was lost when Adam and Eve fell into sin and their sin separated them from God. But it's one of the great, the greatest purposes that's restored in salvation. When you read through a passage like this in Revelation 19, 1-7, You see the saints from throughout the ages joining together with all the angels and all the hosts of heaven in worshiping around God's eternal heavenly throne. And you know, every week when we gather for worship, it's supposed to be kind of an appetizer for that. It's supposed to be kind of like a prelude for that future reality. It should give us just the slightest foretaste of the joy and the delight that we will have when we worship God in heaven. The problem is that our worship here on earth is so easily corrupted. How many times have you been in church and you started thinking about something outside of church? How many times have you been in the middle of singing a song and all of a sudden your, your mind drifts to something else, maybe the football game coming on later on, on later on in the day, or maybe things that are going on at work, or maybe washing your car because it's a nice day outside. I mean, probably once per week, your mind goes astray to something outside of church during service, maybe more. And I'm no different. But let me start by asking this. Does God care how he is worshipped? Does God care how we worship him? This, friends, is one of the most important questions that a Christian can ask. And I would imagine that the vast majority, 90% or more, of professing Christians in our country would think that God does not care how he is worshipped. Rather, I have to believe that most Christians think that God is open to whatever form of worship the individual prefers to offer. This was actually a question uh, does God care how he's worshipped? was a question that I think I first dealt with when I was still in seminary. And our family went to visit a church that was renting out the YMCA. And they were playing secular songs that you hear on the radio. I mean, I'm talking about songs that, you know, you, you turn on the pop radio and you'd hear those songs on there. You, you turn on MTV, you, you'd see those songs being played on there. Um, there was another church that we visited, which I, I think was um, was the most uh, was the fastest growing church in the country at the time, where the the praise and the worship was really indistinguishable from a rock concert. Um, there was fog, 
there, there were lasers, all kinds of fancy lights going on, and the music was, was super loud and upbeat. And I remember looking around during one of the songs and realizing that as far as I could, could tell from the thousands that were gathered in there, Christina and I were the only ones trying to sing along with the music. The reality is that most people at least don't seem like they've given a second thought to a question like this. Does God care how we worship him? And yet when you walk into a church and see some of the things that I've described, or if you've been to a church where you see people barking like dogs or getting up on, on stage or getting up on the pulpit and doing a silly little dance or you know something like that, you can find this kind of stuff online. This really does happen. Something about those things should strike you as profoundly, profoundly wrong. Because for the Christian who takes the Bible seriously, we know that God isn't pleased with anything and everything, is he? I mean, that's why we have to mortify uh, the, the, the works and the deeds of the flesh, right? And the desires of the flesh. And if we have to do that in our personal lives, if we need to mortify sin, mortify desires and practices in our personal, uh, private lives, how much more important is it to understand what pleases God in a sacred place like the assembly of the saints. Whether that's in a building, or in the middle of a field, or in a basement underground where nobody knows about them being there. And this is not a new issue, by the way. Uh, Is anything a new issue? I mean, God's word attests very clearly to the reality that there is nothing new under the sun, that the expression of sin may look slightly different from one culture to the next, but the underlying symptoms, the underlying sins that uh, that cause the expressions of sin are the same from one age to the next and from one culture to the next. In fact, this was Actually, very much an issue in the Protestant Reformation. Indeed, it was a foundational issue uh, in the Protestant Reformation because it had everything to do with the foundational doctrine that was recovered in the, in the Reformation, and that is the doctrine of sola scriptura. The idea that everything that we do, that, that, that Scripture is our only authority, Right, that, that Scripture alone is our source of guidance, informing us as to what is and what is not acceptable and pleasing to God. Luther, uh, the, one, the one who really got the ball started in the Reformation, as much as he sought to, to change and to reform the church, he actually continued throughout his life to hold on to several views uh, that were affirmed and embraced and practiced by the Roman Catholic Church. And one of those issues was the issue of worship. Luther's view was that the medieval worship of uh, Roman Catholic tradition should be preserved except where it explicitly uh, is, is, is uh, uh, not permitted by Scripture. And of course, uh, the worship offered by Roman Catholicism was permeated by tradition, by Roman Catholic tradition, which the Roman Catholic Church to this day affirms is an equal authority to the Bible, right, to Scripture. And of course, if you've ever been to a Roman Catholic Mass, you probably know what I'm talking about. You know that much of what you see and much of what you do in a Roman Catholic Mass is shaped exclusively by tradition, and most of it is not explicitly forbidden by Scripture. Um, take Latin services, for example. Uh, there are uh, Catholic, uh, Roman Catholic um, churches where they, they have a, a Latin mass service. They, uh, they speak entirely in Latin in those services, and the people there don't even understand what is going on. They don't understand what's being said. And yet, when an old friend of mine brought me to a Latin mass many, many years ago, maybe 20, 20 25 years ago, he made sure that I understood that this Latin Mass, even though he didn't understand what was being said, he wanted to make sure that I understood that this Latin Mass was the most sacred of Masses. And so Luther's view was that Christian worship can be guided by tradition as long as that tradition isn't explicitly prohibited in Scripture. Opposing Luther's view was none other than John Calvin himself. I mean, you had two... Reformation giants uh, who were very much at odds on this issue. But Calvin's the one who developed what came to be known as the regulative principle of worship. The regulative principle 
of worship, which is the position that our worship must be shaped sola scriptura. Our worship must be shaped by scripture alone. So Calvin's view, which is the view that would go on to be embraced by, uh, by the Puritans, was that acceptable worship is only that which is specifically instructed by God, while Luther's view, which was the, the view embraced by the Anglican church, and, uh, and which is closer to what we see in, in so many churches today, is that anything not expressly forbidden by Scripture is acceptable. And I have to say, Calvin was right on the money here. I mean, biblically, this is not a difficult case to make at all. The first person who died, why did he die? Because somebody's worship wasn't acceptable to God, right? And then you come to the story of Nadab and Abihu who figured that you know, God would be okay with them uh, worshiping however they wanted. And so we read in Leviticus chapter 10, verses 1 and 2, Now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, took their respective fire pans, and after putting fire in them, placed incense on it, and offered strange fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord." So Luther's view seems to be incompatible, inconsistent with what the Bible says about worship that is pleasing to God. And maybe you'll object by saying, well, you know, why didn't God just tell us everything that he explicitly forbids? And I'd say that the answer is that, uh, well, you know, if you would have told people in the ancient world, I forbid you from having, uh, you know, laser and fog machines in your worship services, or uh, thou shalt not perform five-minute-long guitar solos in the middle of your worship, uh, they would have had no idea what he was talking about. See, there, there are an infinite number of ways to go astray. And that, that's, it's the same as, you know, what's two plus two? The answer is four. How many wrong answers to that question are there? Infinite. Infinite. Which is exactly why Calvin would say, quote, such is our folly that when we are left at liberty, all we are able to do is go astray. And then once we have turned aside from the right path, there is no end to our wanderings. Or maybe you think, well, we're under the new covenant now, though, so uh, you know, this, is, this is the age of, of grace. We can, we can worship however we want based on that, can't we? And I would say, yes, we are, we are under grace. There's an abundance of grace for those who are in Christ Jesus. But nevertheless, we do see instructions for worship in the New Testament. Uh, the Colossian church uh, had, had started to worship falsely. They had started to worship angels and worship falsely. And Paul dealt with that. He, he instructed them, let the word of Christ del- dwell richly within you with all wisdom, teaching, and admonishing one another. How? With psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. That's from Colossians 3.16. If you want a more vivid example of God's rejection of worship that is not presented as he instructed, there is maybe no better New Testament passage to turn to than the passage that we find ourselves in today. Today we're going to be looking at the first occasion in which our Lord went into the temple in Jerusalem and created havoc, overturned tables, ran people out, At this point in his ministry, Jesus only has a small handful of disciples, and his ministry is only now beginning, but he would come back at the end of his ministry and do the same thing again. So we should see this as something of a warning. A warning of what? I mean, you could say a warning about what was going to come in AD 70, if they didn't change their ways, and they didn't. So we know what happened in AD 70, right? The destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. So he would come back at the end of his ministry and and do this again. He would finalize this this judgment. Liberal scholars and commentators think that John is wrong here, which is very interesting. They, They think that Jesus didn't do this twice, but that John falsely reported that this happened at the beginning of Jesus's ministry. Uh, William Barclay, for example, um, Normally, a, a pretty good commentator, he notes this in his commentary. He says that John, quote, is more interested in the truth than in the facts, end quote. As if there's a difference between what is true and what is factual. Or Chuck Swindoll, 
brushes it off by saying that John is just trying to present themes here. He's more interested in presenting themes than he is in giving us a historically accurate depiction of what happened. My question is this. My question is, what does a straightforward, plain, simple reading of Scripture lead us to believe? And I would say it very clearly leads us to believe that Jesus cleanses the temple on two occasions, once at the beginning of his ministry and once at the end of his ministry. In the previous passage, we studied the the first miracle of Jesus when he turned water into wine at the feast, the wedding feast in Cana. And we saw that uh, the empty water pots that Jesus had filled with water and he turned that water into wine, uh, that was re- the, the empty water pots were really a picture of the empty religiosity of any religion other than Christianity. Christianity is the only faith that offers redemption by grace alone, through faith alone. Every other system offers redemption or salvation by some combination of works plus faith. In the previous passage, Jesus stirred up joy. But he's going to stir up a commotion in this passage as he cleanses the temple. So we're going to be looking at the gospel according to John chapter 2, verses 12 to 17. And the point of this passage is that as the Lord of the temple, Jesus has the authority to determine what is and is not acceptable within it. So let's look at John chapter 2, verses 12 to 17. It says this, after this, after the the, uh, wedding feast, after this he went down to Capernaum, he and his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there a few days. The Passover of the Jews was near, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. And he found in the temple those who were selling oxen and sheep and doves and the money changers seated at their tables. And he made a scourge of cords and drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And to those who were selling the doves, he said, Take these things away. Stop making my father's house a place of business. His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. Now normally what I do is I'll read... Uh, through the story one, one piece at a time. I'll, I'll break down a passage into smaller pieces, but A, there's a very good chance that you have read this uh, passage through several times in your life, so you know what's going to happen. And B, there are really no natural breaks in the text here. So we don't know exactly how much time passes between the, the wedding feast in Cana that Jesus attended and this incident in which Jesus goes to the temple in Jerusalem and cleanses it. All we know is that some time does pass, and during this time, Jesus is with his mother. He's, he's with Mary and his brothers and his disciples. But in this, we see the commitment of the disciples. They even follow him to spending time with his family. Let's keep in view the reality that a disciple's task, the thing that makes a disciple a disciple, is they're, they're wanting, they're, they're, they're learning to become more and more like their teacher in every way possible. That alone, by the way, should inform our worship, shouldn't it? It should inform every aspect of our life, and all of life is sacred, yes, but we should also realize that God gives uh, regulation and specific instructions for what takes place within the assembly that he does not give, uh, instruction that he does not give for, uh, for outside of the assembly. But I'm getting ahead of myself here, and I don't want to get too far ahead of myself. The point is that the disciples are committing themselves to learning to be like Jesus, as every one of us should be as well. But we see that they follow him even into the most personal and seemingly insignificant of places. His home. His mother's home. What takes place there? Does he preach to them, to the disciples, to his family? Does he, uh, does he even speak on spiritual matters? I mean, we don't know. It's kind of left to our imagination a little bit. But what we can see is that it's all presented in a way that is kind of devoid of excitement. Uh, it's just one sentence. It's presented in a very, very plain and ordinary way. But it doesn't stay that way for long, does it? 
See, Jesus is Lord over the ordinary parts of life, but he is also the Lord of the temple. Speaking of the temple, we read that that's where Jesus goes next. It was expected that Jewish males would travel three times a year to the temple in Jerusalem for the feasts of Passover, Pentecost, and uh, Tabernacles. Um, So it seems very unlikely that this is his first time there. But as far as we know, it's the first time that he has responded, physically responded, to what he sees there. Uh, in, In the miracle of the wedding feast... The empty water pots were a picture of the empty religiosity of Judaism. Now uh, now Jesus goes to confront that empty religiosity. It seems very likely that these two signs are placed in close proximity for a reason. Yes, I believe that they really happened in this sequence, in this order, but I also believe that there's a reason that God wanted this to happen in this order. At the wedding, Jesus turns water into wine, showing his ability to fill us with joy. In this sign, Jesus shows his holy wrath, his his righteous indignation toward that which steals godly joy from us and steals glory from God. See, pilgrims from distant lands would journey to Jerusalem for the feast of the Passover. And when they came, they were required to present sacrifices In Deuteronomy, there was a stipulation for such instances when it wasn't very practical for somebody to bring their their offering or their their sacrifice over the the course of a long journey where the Israelites were instructed in this way. Deuteronomy 14, 24, and 25. It says this, If the distance is so great for you that you are not able to bring the tithe since the place where the Lord your God chooses to set his name is too far away from you when the Lord your God blesses you, then you shall exchange it for money and bind the money in your hand and go to the place which the Lord your God chooses. So that's what people would do. They, they wanted to present sacrifices, but if they had you know, several weeks or maybe a month of, of traveling, uh, it wasn't practical to bring their, their uh, sacrifices and offerings with them. So what they would do is they would sell their sacrifices back home, take the money, go to Jerusalem, buy a sacrifice, and present their sacrifice because people were traveling from so far away. So when they come, uh, they come with their foreign currencies, which they would use and and use that currency for for animals, uh, which would uh, also, by the way, we see, were set up in the place called the court of the Gentiles. How convenient is that? They had this area where they could set up these tables to not only sell their sacrifices, you know, for people, but where they could exchange foreign currencies. Well, this might look convenient, but it's not very convenient for the Gentiles because it left them with no place to worship God, no place to go to pray. On top of the sacrifices, the temple would only take local currency. And so money changers would be set up there to, uh, to exchange currencies, but of course they would do that at Uh, you know, an exorbitant rate. These, These were like loan sharks, basically. So why was Jesus so indignant? Why why was he so furious? To answer that question, we we have to understand what the purpose of the temple was. And of course, you could give a a really simple answer to you know what what's the purpose of the temple and say that well it was supposed to be a place for worshiping God. But all of life is supposed to be lived in a way that is really an act of worship unto God, isn't it? And indeed, it is. For absolutely everybody, believer and non-believer alike, they worship. Listen to what Romans 1 says. Romans 1.25, it says, They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and did what? Worshipped. Everybody worships. Everybody worships. They worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator. So it's not enough to say that it was just a place to worship, that the temple was just a place to worship. We have to clarify that it was a place to worship God rightly in the manner that he had instructed. It wasn't to be run like the marketplace. It's okay to have a marketplace. God God is fine with, uh, with the free market. But the temple is a place that's sacred. 
It's set apart, and it's to be treated differently than the marketplace. And if you read the detailed instructions about the insides of the temple and the, and the outside of the temple, you'll need to understand that every single aspect, everything about the temple was holy. It was all sacred. And it all pointed to Christ. There was absolutely nothing that was placed within the sanctuary, nothing that was allowed into the sanctuary that reminded people of or that pointed to the world. It was all sacred. There were to be no distractions, nothing that could even potentially draw one's attention away from God. And what we see here as Jesus comes to the temple in Jerusalem is that the world has invaded the temple. The world has invaded the temple. It's a dangerous thing for the world when we as Christians go out into it. It is even more dangerous when the world comes into the temple or the church. The world has invaded the temple in Jerusalem. And at this point, it is not a place of worship as Jesus sees. It had become a place of commerce. It had become indistinguishable from the marketplace, a place where greedy people could turn a hefty profit on a captured audience. It had become entirely about something other than the very purpose for which it had been created. And friends, we see it happening in our own day and age. Instead of being devoted to serving and worshiping God in accordance with biblical principles, churches in our time are devoted to all kinds of crazy things. First and foremost, I think one of the biggest problems that the modern church faces is the practice of pragmatism. If you're not sure what pragmatism is, pragmatism is uh, just doing whatever works, whatever it takes to, to make your, uh, your, your business thrive. And when you apply that to business, that's, that's perfectly fine. I mean, what does it take to get 10 billion people to eat your cheeseburgers? Okay, so you, you figure out what it, what it takes, and, uh, and you do that 10 billion times. Um, but we can't apply that same principle to the church. We cannot take the mentality that we will do whatever it takes to draw people in. See, the message of the temple was the same message that the church has today. And that message is that the most important thing a person can do is submit to God and to thereby enter into a redemptive relationship with Him. See, even the lost have a relationship with God. But it's the same relationship that a criminal has with a righteous judge. But the temple's purpose is to bring those people into right standing with God. And if you study the history of Israel throughout the Old Testament, you see that whenever this was the, the preserved purpose of the temple, the people of Israel would be faithful and their lives were blessed, and all was well. But as the worship in the temple was corrupted, those blessings were removed. And there was a ripple effect throughout all of Israelite society, all the people in Israel. In Judges, for example, God sent the judges, why? To, to call the people back to God, because they kept going astray. And that they would rescue the people, call them back to faithfulness, and, and it happens over and over again. There, there comes a time where, uh, where they, they get taken into captivity by the, the surrounding nations, and God sends a judge. They come back to God. Everything's well, but before you know it, they're right back to square one, straying away from God. And so it's a cycle that repeats over and over again for generations in the book of Judges. But we also see this throughout the Old Testament, don't we? And if you look at the history of the world over the course of the past 2,000 years, you'll see that the same principle applies to the church. When the church is faithful, society does well. When the church gets corrupted, society doesn't do so well. Where is our culture right now? Look at all of the worldly ideologies that have invaded the church at large in our culture. 
Pragmatism is, is one of them. I'd say pragmatism is, is the catalyst. It's the big one. Uh, it, it's kind of been like a doorstop, if you, if you can imagine that. You know, that, that it props the door open, allowing all these other worldly ideologies to come in. Because once you have the idea that you'll do anything at all, that, that anything goes to draw people in, where do you draw the line? So pragmatism is kind of like a doorstop. And so you start asking, well, okay, well, What's it going to take to, to draw people in? Well, let's, let's make sure that we don't drive them away by offending them. Uh, so let's make our sermons you know, resemble pep talks uh, that don't mention things like sin or repentance or God's wrath. But eventually what happens is the world gets bored with that. And they stop coming, and so, uh, so they, they re-examine. They say, well, uh, what's it going to take to bring people in? Well, let's go with shorter sermons. And for a while that might work, but eventually the world again gets bored with the church. And so they say, well, what do we do now to bring people in the door? And who knows? Maybe they say, well, you know, the, the used car lot down the street brings people in by having a bouncy house out in the parking lot. The idea is, that whatever works will embrace it and will practice it so that people will find it appealing. That is not a biblical way of bringing people into church. Do you see why the world doesn't respect the church in our culture, in our day and age? I mean, does this help you to understand why the world mocks the church and laughs at the church and scorns the church? I mean, it's no wonder the world doesn't take us seriously, and they shouldn't when the church doesn't take the worship of God seriously. The temple was designated. It was set apart by God. It was sacred to be a place of sacred worship. But it was also to be a place that called people into right standing with God and kept people in right standing with God. And what Jesus sees as he comes into the temple in Jerusalem is that the temple has become something other than a place of worship. And he sees that something else has come in. And by the temple allowing this other thing, this worldly ideology to come in, they're actually preventing people from coming to God. And friends, in a day and age when pragmatism is the name of the game for so many churches, that's what the whole megachurch model is built on. That's exactly what the church does when she loses sight of her primary calling and adapts a business mindset, a worldly business mindset, over a mindset of reverent worship and faithfulness to her calling. We can't take an anything-goes-whatever-works approach to our worship. We must maintain our priorities and keep our message pure and in line with Scripture. The reason that the church is losing or maybe has lost the culture and the reason we're being mocked and scorned as never before is because of the defilement of that which God has entrusted the church. Rather than using her resources and blessings in a way that pleases God. Many in our day and age have taken our blessings for granted and we use what has been given to us, what has been entrusted to us for selfish gain. And that's the very same thing that Jesus is responding to here in this passage in John. So let's be sure that we understand that Jesus isn't just displaying, you know, having a temper tantrum here. You know, no, no, despite the fact that he is both fully God and fully man, his flesh never influenced him to act in a way that did not please God. So we must understand that this isn't just a, a, a spur of the moment outburst of anger, but that this is a picture of the just and holy wrath of God against anything that would defile or anything that would distract at the temple. You see, what we do when we gather to worship, what we do on Sunday mornings, reveals a lot about what we think about God. A church that 
plays worship music for, for hours because that's what, what stirs people up emotionally. Uh, a church that stirs up the emotions uh, by, by dimming the lights or having lasers and fog and all those types of things reveals that they believe, to, this is what they reveal to the world, they reveal to the world that they believe that God is weak or that he somehow needs our help to get people excited about him. That is not the message that the church wants to send. A church that preaches short messages that are unoffensive, in in which maybe the preacher doesn't even have a Bible in front of him, reveals that Scripture is not central to what they do. A church that focuses on money or pressures people to to sow a seed or to, to reap a blessing reveals that they believe in a God who is ultimately not a whole lot different from a slot machine or a genie in a bottle. Let me ask you this. What message does the church send to the world when the church does not try to look like the world? It sends the message that pleasing God is more important than pleasing man and that we are more eager, more more interested in gaining God's approval than we are in gaining man's approval. When the church urges all who listen to repent and to believe in Christ, we show that we believe in a God who is offended by sin but offers mercy and offers grace and forgiveness and cleansing for all who will come to Christ. When the church spends much time in prayer, enough time in prayer, that a a heathen who's in attendance would would start to get bored and start wondering, uh, is this ever going to end? The church sends a message by doing that, that our God is a God who listens and who cares and who comforts, who does not abandon us. John tells us that Jesus made a scourge, a short whip out of cords, and he used them to drive people from the temple, to cleanse the temple. Now, he doesn't hurt anyone. There, there's no, uh, no mention, no, no reason to believe that Jesus actually uh, hurt anybody. Uh, rather, they were just scared. They, they were so scared that they, they ran from him. He, he drove them away. He, he, he didn't actually hurt them. But if you think about it, what love that he would do that. What mercy that he would do that. If you consider how God dealt with those who defiled his temple before, Nadab and Abihu, for example, or Cain, we can see that these people who get, who get run off are just fortunate. They're blessed to be leaving with their lives. And as Jesus drives this idolatry, this, this worldly ideology out of the temple, his disciples remember something. They remember Psalm 69.9 which says, zeal for your house has consumed me. They remember, as we would be wise to remember with them, that Jesus doesn't just have a zeal for worship, but that he has a zeal for pure and undefiled worship, for obedient worship, for reverent worship. Now, please don't understand me. I don't think that this passage in any way, shape, or form is saying that you can't have a table out in the foyer with, with a box on it uh, that, that collects uh, you know, donations for missions, for example. Uh, I'm not even saying that you can't sell anything in the church. I don't even think that, the, that this passage rightfully tells us that, that things can't be sold in the church, although I do think that something like that should be done in a way that doesn't distract from the worship itself, right? So it should be done in a discreet way. It should be done maybe... Uh, Uh, preferably after the service, possibly before it, but certainly not during the worship service. But what I do think it's telling us, what I do think this passage is explicitly showing us, is that anything that could potentially distract us from things like reverent prayer, singing with, with joy and thanksgiving in our hearts, confessing our sin before God, being convicted and corrected through the study of God's Word. Anything that distracts us or inhibits us from those things should be removed. And friends, never, never let the church become something that you view as optional, especially if you're a parent. 
you know, th- this is the way we, we run our lives. We, we have a to-do list, whether it's physical or just in our minds. We have a list of things that we, that we need to do. And once we, we start uh, viewing those things, taking a look at those things, things get shuffled around. Things move from this to that and maybe even completely off the list. But the risk is that we do that with church. We, you know, we, we, we treat things in our lives as if they're optional. And if you're a parent, you know that so many things that your kids learn aren't things that you told them. It's things that you showed them. Things that are, are, are caught rather than taught. That is, our, our children learn by watching the example that you set for them. If the Christian life is all about becoming more like Jesus, and it is, should we not also, as we become more like Christ, grow and increase in our zeal for pure and undefiled, obedient, reverent worship. See, the danger that every single one of us faces is to see worship, see, see, see the, the Sunday morning service as just being no different from maybe the worship that we engage in other times in the week. Like maybe you're, you're driving your car and there's a good song that comes on Christian radio and, and your heart gets stirred. And, and if you take the mindset that there's no difference between that and what happens on Sunday morning, you start seeing your Sunday worship as something that is peripheral in life when the Sunday gathering is supposed to be something that is immovable and mandatory for your life, something that you will not move. I mean, unless you're sick and you, know, you don't want to get people sick. Last week we saw that, right? Okay, I, I get that. But it's not something that you should view with the same degree of, uh, of importance as the Sunday afternoon football game. That is, don't, you should see it as something central. You should not see a football game as something that's central to your life. But you see, once you start seeing it as something that you can do with or without, you're in a dangerous place. You're in a dangerous place. That's a very dangerous attitude to have toward church. See, the danger is that we take the view that the things with which God has entrusted us, the things that we have stewardship over, the things that that, that we have responsibility for, that those things are all really all about us. We might not say it, but we start living it. Our time, our blessings, our relationships, every resource that we have. Let me ask you this. Are you using these things all in a way that pleases and glorifies God? Or are you using them to suit your own needs and to serve your own purposes? Do you look at Sunday as the Lord's day? Or do you look at it as just another day off for you? You know, there's, there's a reason that the, the Puritans called it the Lord's Day. They, they understood that every day was the Lord's Day. So why did they call it the Lord's Day? Because they understood that there's something special, something different, something sacred about gathering for worship on Sunday mornings. See, the word worship is actually derived from the word worth-ship, which is a really hard thing to say, worth-ship. So whenever we examine our worship, we must ask ourselves about the worth-ship of God to us. What is God worth to us? In cleansing the temple, Jesus was sending the message that God is only worth reverent, obedient, pure, undefiled devotion and worship. Does the current state of our culture concern you? As people are mocking and scorning and laughing at the church? I mean, in one sense, maybe it shouldn't, because we have an understanding that God is sovereign over it, right? That, and that God is the only one who can, who can change hearts. But in another sense, it should concern us, because souls are at stake, and Christ has given us a mission He's entrusted us with a great responsibility to demonstrate the power and the glory of God to change us from wretched rebels into joyfully obedient worshipers. This, friends, this right here is the greatest need of the hour for the church at large. But it starts with Christians at an individual level, and I'll preach more about that in our next lesson. But for now, I think it's worth asking, is there anything in your life 
that's preventing you from offering pure and undefiled worship unto God? Is there any area of your life that you maybe have not brought under Christ's rightful lordship and authority? Maybe you've been tempted to bring worldly distractions with you into church, but know this, there's grace. There's grace. We're all tempted in the same ways, but there is grace in Christ Jesus. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sin, the Lord Jesus, who is faithful and just, will cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Even coming into his house distracted. What a, what a beautiful promise to live by. A, pr- a promise of grace. A promise of, of cleansing for everyone. Unlimited cleansing. For anyone who will repent, confess sin, and set their heart and mind on Christ rightly again. In the previous passage, the empty water pots were a picture of the empty religiosity that was not cleansing anyone, right? What was in the water pots initially? Nothing. They weren't cleansing anyone. And this compromised temple, which was allowing all kinds of worldliness and all kinds of distractions to get a foot in the door, it wasn't cleansing anyone either. But Jesus can. Jesus can, and Jesus does. Jesus, the Lord of the temple, cleanses the temple. He cleanses it of worldliness. What we see as we look at all these worldly ideologies creeping into so many churches, even our own denomination, and into churches across the nation, can only be seen as God's judgment. Why is there so much confusion? Why is there so much division? Why is there so much strife? What happened to the influence that the church had over the culture? It can all be traced back to the church giving sway to worldly methods and worldly ideologies, making a little compromise here and a little compromise there. Friends, the church cannot win the world with the world's own ideas. The world gets bored with its own ideas. And the church will not influence the culture by virtue signaling, by encouraging Christians to do the very same thing that the mainstream media is encouraging us to do, that the teachers in public schools are encouraging people to do. No, the church's greatest need right now as we see so much confusion, so much strife, so much division, even in the church, the church's greatest need is the need that Jesus is addressing in the temple. And that need is to be cleansed of worldliness. So let us pray steadfastly for revival. The churches in our culture would repent and, and reform their doctrine and that Christ would be greatly glorified in that reformation. Our collective response as a church must be to examine ourselves, to repent of anything unholy, anything distracting, anything defiling, and to pray that we, even if it means that we stand alone, to pray that we would remain steadfastly fixed on the mission that Christ has entrusted us with, and that is proclaiming the gospel in order that men and women would be brought into faithful fellowship, right fellowship with God, and that we would demonstrate the power and the glory of Christ in our redemption. His power to redeem us, His power to cleanse us, His power to fill us and to change us as an assembly, as a gathering of people who have been set apart from the world for the honor and the glory and the pure worship of the Lord of the temple, the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Our most gracious Father, we are so grieved to see so much confusion and so much strife in the church in our day and age. We, we go to Facebook or we go to Twitter and we see Christians fighting with each other. 
you go to conferences and we can see that people are, are, are separating from each other there. There are even conferences devoted to importing worldly ideologies. Oh, Father, have mercy on our, on our culture. Lord, we, we confess that it is so easy for us to take a whatever-it-takes attitude toward church. That we are no different from anyone else. We face this temptation. I face this temptation. And so we pray that you would give us grace for the times when we're even tempted and, and even, even entertaining the thought that you can be worshipped casually, that we can compromise on our mission just a, a little bit, just for the sake of bringing people in. Thank you, Lord, for all that you have entrusted us with. Thank you, Lord, that you have faithfully preserved even this church. And Father, without your grace, we know, we know that the doors would be closed. And so we, we give you praise and we give you honor and glory for what you have done. And we pray for the future, Lord, that you would continue to sustain this ministry by your grace. But we pray for the church at large, Lord. We pray for people to to see the error of things like pragmatism. That we would see the danger of letting worldly ideologies into the church. And we pray, Lord, that by your grace and by your power, the culture would start to see that we do have a message and that that message is your power to change lives and to save people. Give us strength. Give us perseverance. Give us wisdom. Discipline us if necessary to have our minds and our hearts completely fixed on doing what we do in a way that complies with what pleases you, with your word, that complies with your word, in order that Christ would be glorified here and that your people would be strengthened here for the glory and the honor of Christ as the Lord of the temple. Amen. This message has been brought to you by BibleStudyPodcast.org. We are a listener-supported ministry. If this is your first time listening to us, we thank you so much for joining us, and we ask nothing further from you. But if this is a ministry that you rely on for regular spiritual teaching, we do depend on your financial support to keep us going and growing. If you'd like to make a donation to BibleStudyPodcast.org to keep us going and reaching thousands of people around the world, you can go to our website, BibleStudyPodcasts.org, and you can make a donation on the right-hand side by clicking on the support box. Again, we do rely on your support, and we thank you so much for your financial participation in this ministry, which enables us to continue in our mission of teaching timeless truths in these truthless times. God bless you. Thank you so much for listening today and keep growing closer to Jesus. Take me deeper.